If you have a Bible or if you want to get one of the Bibles that are on the chairs there, we're in Mark chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark chapter 4, continuing through this series from the Gospel of Mark, looking at really the nature of what true discipleship is. Many competing um, strategies on what discipleship is in the marketplace of ideas in the, in the church. Jesus tells us in these two chapters that discipleship actually looks different than what we might expect. It starts small and grows big. It may not reach as many people as we expect it to. And this is the question that he's answering when he tells this parable, a parable of the sower. Or some have titled it parable of four soils. Why? Why do more people not respond to his message? It says, verse 1, Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, quoting Isaiah here, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires 
for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word that is good for us, perfect in all of its ways. We pray with me. Father, thank you for this, your word. May it fall on fruitful soil today. Lord, may we hear and not harden our hearts. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Because we know when they're pleasing in your sight, they're good and best for us. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. The story came to me from another pastor about a monk in a city in northern, northern Italy, rather, lived in the mountains. Every day would come to, uh, to worship in the morning, and one day on a cold winter day, he found a bird, a small bird by the side of the road. It was struggling and barely surviving, and he picked up the bird, and he put it in his shirt and kept going. And as the bird warmed, it started to, it started to wriggle around a bit and even make some noises. And arriving at the church, he realized he couldn't take it inside, and so he looked around at options, and he saw there a fresh cow patty still steaming took the bird and put it in the cow patty. The bird continued to sing louder and louder, and eventually a fox nearby heard the bird, came, snatched it out of the cow patty, and ate it. Many lessons to be learned from this story. Those who put you in the stuff aren't necessarily the bad guys, and those who take you out of the stuff aren't necessarily the good guys. The story was told by a university president to a number of new professors whose point was more simple, straightforward, know when to keep your mouth shut. The parables are interesting things, aren't they? They're... They're sometimes really obvious to understand, and yet sometimes there are hidden meanings to them. Others are more difficult to understand. Parables were really something that were fairly new when Jesus introduced them, at least from the history that we can see. Some people used parables. The prophet Nathan, when he confronted King David on his infamous sins, told a story of... uh, a farmer who had this one lone lamb. A wealthy farmer came and took even that from him. The story represented something, and David said, Who is this man? And he said, It's you. And the you, of course, was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. But for the most part, parables are something new, and so when Jesus begins teaching in parables, it's not surprising that his disciples need him to explain things. 
It's also not surprising that the, the scribes and the leaders and other people around don't quite get things and even they may be kept in the dark so that the prophet Isaiah, when God said to him, speak in such a way or you will speak or I will speak in such a way that they will, they will see it. It will be right in front of their face, but they won't get it. They'll hear the words, but they won't understand them. We may look at it now and say, how can they be so simple-minded that they don't understand this parable? But if you're not used to that, if you're not used to that method of teaching, they may not be, have been as obvious. I don't want to take this argument too far. Because if we take it too far, we go the route that most of modernity takes when thinking about ancient people. And that is to assume that just because something is old, they were stupid. Or ignorant. Or had less understanding than we have in this period of enlightened science and philosophy. That's a dangerous assumption to make, isn't it? That somebody who lived before you was inherently more ignorant than you are just because they didn't have the internet. Or as many books as sit on our shelves and go unread oftentimes. In fact, in many ways, people in other cultures in ancient times have had more ability to see and understand things. And so it's tough to say conclusively how much they would have understood about these parables and how much would have been a mystery to them. But Jesus gives us another clue about how these parables work and how the secret works. What is this secret of the kingdom that he says in verse 11? To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And when is that kingdom secret revealed on a larger scale? And the next parable that I had originally grouped with next week's reveals something about when that secret will be revealed. He says to them, verse 21, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? And not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus has been concealing his ministry up to now with the express purpose of not being arrested, not being absorbed, consumed by the crowds and by the powers so as to not be able to complete his earthly ministry. He sends people away saying, go and say nothing. But go and offer in the temple the, the sacrifice that is due. His secret is being kept with a few people for a purpose and at least a primary purpose, a portion of that purpose is so that he can complete his earthly ministry and invest in these few 
which, by the way, is not just the twelve, but twelve along with others who had gathered around him. There's more than just the twelve. Verse 10 said that. But gradually this lamp is taken out from under the basket that Jesus is keeping it under and revealed to more and more in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other parts of that nation that King Solomon ruled over we saw a couple of weeks ago to the point where when Jesus is raised from the dead and his disciples go out that the good news of the gospel, the lamp is set on a stand that shines so that the whole world can see it. All of the nations. And what extinguishes the lamp is not the lamp itself, but the people's own blindness. Their inability to see what is clearly in front of their face. Because of the condition of their heart, which proverbially affects their ability to see and to hear and to understand the Word of God. The seed is the Word. That might have been confusing for them. They might have thought that the seed was themselves, they themselves, and they were responsible for their own growth. But the seed was the word that enters into a person like a physical seed enters into the ground. The word was a powerful concept in Greek culture. The Greek word logos is one that is probably the most familiar of all Greek words, which means word, but it's a bigger word than just word. It means a concept, an idea a philosophy, a worldview, a way of interpreting things, a solution to a problem. It is this large word, logos, that Jesus says of himself, I am the word. And it's interesting to see that all the gospels, the four gospels begin with this word concept, but Mark waits longer than most of them. John opens his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And more than that, the Word was God. Read that chapter, John chapter 1, substituting the word Word with Jesus, and it becomes apparent that Jesus is the Word made manifest, revealed. All of the other words of the Scriptures the Old Testament and the New point to this Word that is a human being in God Himself. Matthew, as Jesus begins His public ministry, and He's confronted in the wilderness with Satan, tempting Him, answers Him, He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, logos, that comes from the mouth of God. And Luke as well Chapter 4, verse 36 says, They were amazed at Jesus' teaching and His healing, and they said to Him, What is this word? For with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. 
Words not only have meaning, words have power. And Jesus' early ministry especially is concerned to demonstrate that he has power and that the meaning of his words have authority. They have influence. And so the question that rises in people's mind, perhaps even as disciples at this time, and many of us, And many outside the church is if this word has so much power, why do so many people reject it? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. This farmer went out and spread seeds along the ground and some of them fall on rocks. Some of them fall on the path and some of them fall among weeds and others fall on good soil and they have dramatically different effects. And you may ask, why? Why is the farmer so careless in scattering his seeds? Here it helps to have a little bit of understanding of farming in the ancient world, particularly in this region where it was typical that they would sow their seeds before they would plow their fields. So a farmer may be familiar with his field, but in general, he would sow abundantly, generously, not necessarily knowing where the rocks would be or where the weeds would sprout up beside the good plants. They would sow right up to the roads, we know, because in Israel it was a law of the land that the, the, the crops right along the road you weren't to harvest because travelers as they were going and if they weren't as well planned out as some travelers were, they could, they could glean from the edges of the field. They could harvest some to eat along their way. But more than any of that, I think this picture shows the picture of a generous God. Being like a generous farmer who throws his seed out wide with full knowledge that not all the seed is going to produce fruit in people's lives. Why would he do such a thing? Well, because because he's generous in sowing that seed not just to a select number of people, but to everybody. In fact, oftentimes people critique God. They say, why isn't God more generous? Why doesn't he just save everybody? But then in the same breath, or maybe in the next sentence, they might say, why doesn't God speak to everybody? Why doesn't God throw out the word to everybody? And you see the conflict there. Well, he has given his word generously, and yet people have not responded. I want to pause there for a second and just press us in this lesson to sow generously when we sow our lives, when we pour out our lives, when we give to others. Because Jesus does this with his followers as well, telling the story of people who are given money, different quantities of money, and one is given ten, and one is given five, and one is given one, and the one who's given ten goes out and he he invests it and he comes back and he brings a return on investment. And the other one who sows five, given five, goes out and invests it, comes back, it brings a return on the investment. But the one who has one 
keeps it because he's afraid of losing it. And when he comes back, his master is angry with him for not investing it, not giving it away, not sowing generously, using the language of our parable today. And because God gives generously of his word to many, we are called to give generously not only of his word, but of ourselves to others, both inside of the visible kingdom, those who we see who respond to Jesus' words, but also those who are outside of the visible kingdom, the church. Because it's those who are outside of the visible kingdom that seem to respond most to Jesus' message when it's preached. It's those outside of the visible church, the visible synagogues in Jesus' time, who had been cast away and given up on for the most part, by the institutional hierarchy of the day. And Jesus comes and he sows broadly so that some might come and hear, but he's not so naive to think that everyone who hears his words is going to respond. And he says quite confidently, with complete knowledge that many people will hear his words and not respond. And at this point, Jesus takes the mirror and he turns it to his audience and he asks them, what is the condition of the soil of your heart? And most of you probably think right now I'm going to ask you to do things to condition the soil of your heart and prepare it, but if you hear that in this parable, you've missed the primary point of the parable. Jesus doesn't ask anybody to condition the soil of their heart. He asks them to assess the soil of their heart. He didn't give any instructions on how to cultivate the soil in here to people. He just said some people have hard hearts that don't receive the word. Some people spring up with great excitement. They're zealous when they first hear the word, but then they fall away. Some people... They are interested, but man, everything around them, especially the pursuit of wealth and riches, chokes them out. Then others, it falls on good soil. This will step on some toes. Jesus may have been the first EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. He's taking a soil sample from people's lives, pulling it up and testing it to see whether they're growing. We can do the same thing by looking at the fruit in our lives from the Word of God that's sown in our lives. Is is the fruit in your lives, does it look like the, the stuff that's sown among the thorns that's being choked out constantly. You want to do the right thing. You want to read the word. You want to live graciously toward others. You want to experience the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the gentleness that comes from knowing Christ, but you find yourself always not able to do it. It's a sign. It's a sign of the condition of the soil that's in your life. Others of you, you hear it 
and you want to believe, but you go away and you think this is too good to be true. You keep saying, Jesus, why don't you do something in my life? But then you never listen to what it takes for that thing to happen. It's like going to a doctor and telling him all of your problems, and the doctor says, I have a solution for you. And then you say to him, but doctor, you haven't heard me. I have all these problems. He says, I have a solution for you. You go away saying, man, that doctor was bad. But Jesus says, the solution is here, but do you have a heart that receives it? Still others grow up quickly, it seems. Fall on rocky ground, the soil shallow, quick growth, but it never finds its root in the ground. It appears to be going well for a season. But then when life gets really tough, when life gets really tough, you find yourself falling away from God and going to other things instead of coming to God. When the stresses of life, when the struggles of life, when the suffering of life comes, do you find yourself clinging to God, saying, I can't find hope anywhere else. God, how long? God, why is this happening to me? That's what Jesus said when he was facing the suffering of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't just roll with it. He clung to God even more when the sun got hot. Now, I would be a bad preacher if I just told you how to take that assessment, how to take that soil sample and assess it and not give you anything to do about it. And I think most of us who are in those first three categories of unfruitful soil keep trying to do something about it, and we can't. And the reason is we keep trying to cultivate our heart in ways that God alone can do the cultivating. You see, our soil isn't just messed up by rocks and by path. Our soil is toxic. Like soil that sat under a, a manufacturing plant that just dripped oil and other contaminants into it that sunk down and down and down and can't grow a thing unless it's ripped up and completely cleansed and turned around. And it's only God, Jesus says, that can do that. And so the message that John the Baptist begins his ministry with and that Jesus affirms time and again isn't to keep doing stuff that's going to cultivate your soil. It's to come to God with a humble spirit and repent of our sins. And say, God, I keep trying to do this myself, but it's not working. It's only when we come to the end of ourselves there and we say, I can't fix this myself, that God can come in and rip up that soil and begin the cleansing process. It's only when we depend on Jesus fully for our whole sense of worth and of value and we keep repenting of the places and the ways we try to build up our wealth and riches and the ways that we're anxious about everything in life 
the ways that we've hardened ourselves against God and the ways that we try to excite ourselves to growth, but it keeps falling down flat when suffering comes. And Jesus lifts us up and grows the fruit and produces more than is normally possible from a harvest. Most of the time, the fruit produces ten times, tenfold. But none of the three scenarios that this parable ends with is just tenfold. Thirtyfold, it says, some of the seed. That's not bad seed. If you're producing 30-fold, don't be ashamed. Don't compare yourself to the one who's producing 60-fold. That's some of the other seed, 60-fold seed. If you're in the 60-fold count, don't compare yourself to the fruit of the 100-fold seed. All of them are fruitful. All of them are children of God. All of them are in soil that produces fruit, all of them are bearing that fruit, all of them are loved by God, all of them are where Jesus is doing his work in their life. For me personally, the greatest temptation in my life, the greatest plague I think that for most of us, many of us maybe, perhaps a majority, is the temptation to constantly compare ourselves to others in ministry, in work, in our home, in parenting, life, in school, everywhere. Everything around us tells us your worth is, compare, is measured by comparing yourself to others. Where do you rank in the tests? How much do you get paid compared to somebody else? How many people read your blog? It's filled with all kinds of things that are perfect in your life when you know you're not perfect, by the way. Jesus is the one who produces fruit in his hearer's life. His disciples are not bearing fruit yet. In fact, he sends them out, 12, and then another group of 72. They come back frustrated. They don't bear hardly any fruit. People reject him. Agriculture takes time. It's organic growth. It takes it takes patient endurance. It takes faithfulness on our part to pray and to read the Word of God, to attend worship, to not neglect the assembly of believers, to invest ourselves in others, to truly befriend others, to share our weaknesses with others, and to endure others' weaknesses. To give to the body of Christ with our gifts and depend on others where they have gifts. But Jesus says that where that seed falls, where it falls in the lives of the people that he has called to himself, there is both God's sovereignty here and human responsibility here. Fruit is the result. You should hope and expect for fruit in your life. When you don't see it, you should repent of it, but know that just the fact that you are beginning with that prayer of repentance puts you off the path of hardness and toward 
being good soil where the word can bear its fruit. Just the acknowledgement that Jesus, I am a sinner in need of your help, changes the condition of your soil, the condition of your heart. And God is a sign, it's a sign for you that God is already at work in your life. When you see those signs of God's work in your life, take heart. Take heart because even those little tiny sprouts are where every plant starts. Sometimes the droughts come and it withers back, but the, the plant comes back. And God can do miraculous things in your life and in the lives of those around you. Let's pray. Jesus, we are laid low. Many of us at the assessment of the fruit that's born out in our lives. This is a painful process to hear Jesus' parable. But I pray that we would hear it and that we would understand it. And that we would not be ones with hearts that were hardened. As the people were even in the wilderness who had just seen your miraculous works by delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. I pray that we would look back on our salvation in the mighty work of Jesus and would find hope and strength, be renewed in our joy, in our optimism for life. And Lord, we pray that you would do this hard work of cleansing the soil in our sin-sick, sin-infested hearts to make them more and more pure. Only you can do this, Jesus. And so we pray it in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing the church's one foundation.